Good morning. If you'll turn with me, we've been going through Genesis. I'm going to keep going through. If you'll turn with me to chapter 16, that's where we'll be at this morning. <coughs> and by way of introduction, I, I want to be very straight with you. There's going to be a part of this where we get to it and you are not going to like it. And I know that because I don't like it. But it's still the truth of Scripture. Reminds me of coming to the doctrine of grace. The doctrines, plural, of grace so many years ago. Um, It's probably a bit ironic But I am a Reformed believer today because as a youth pastor, I made a pamphlet about how demonic Calvinism was. I handed it out to my youth group. I handed it out all over town. I put it in gas stations and bathrooms, and I was quite convinced. And when the Lord brought me to the doctrines of grace, I came kicking and screaming. I don't like it. I see this is what the scriptures say, but I don't like it. And I think sometimes there are truths of scriptures that are like that. And I think we're going to see one of them today. So with God's grace, we will see it. We will wrestle with it. And we will allow it to be applied into our lives. So if you will, would you stand with me? Let's read through this, and then we'll get into the exposition of this. Chapter 16. Of Genesis. This is God's word. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened, or heeded, the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord now judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you're pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all of his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing or you are the God who sees. For she said, truly, here I have been seen by him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lehi Roy. 
and it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Now Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. You may be seated. <coughs> Let's pray. Father, give, give our attention to your word. Let us read it, Lord. Let us understand it. Let it be preached today with clarity. Let everything that's done and said here, Lord, bring glory to your name, not to anyone else. We thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. There are some weighty truths of Scripture in this passage. And some of those weighty truths are going to go against your flesh nature. Right? Just like the gospel. Why is the gospel so often rejected by men? Is it because it's not true? No. It's because it goes against our flesh nature. We don't want to believe that we are so bad we are unable to redeem ourselves. Our flesh nature wants to right what's wrong by doing it myself. Why? Because I want the credit. That's the flesh nature. I want the credit. I don't want to have to believe that I'm irredeemable to the point that I have to have someone else come in and do it for me. I want to believe that I can do it myself. And so at the end of the day, I can praise myself for how I'm now a good person. That's the gospel. There are other truths of Scripture that go against our flesh, and this, is, this passage is full of them. And we're going to get into that. Let's start at the top. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Question, where did Hagar come from? Why did they have an Egyptian servant to start with? I mean, this whole thing could have been avoided if they didn't have a female servant, right? Genesis chapter 12. Let's go over to 12 real quick. We'll make a detour real fast. 12 verse 16. Remember, when Abram went down to Egypt, he knew his wife was a good-looking lady. Ronnie loves when I mention that his wife was a good-looking lady. He tells me that's all I talk about. She was a good-looking lady. While they were in Egypt, the pharaohs... The Pharaoh gets word, hey, there's this new guy in town, and man, his wife is good looking. Okay? Basically, same thing that happens to me every time I move to a new school. New guy in town, his wife's good looking, we have no idea how in the world a girl like that married a guy like him. <laughs> me neither. Now, here's what he says. For her sake, remember, what did Abram do? He's scared that Pharaoh will kill him for his wife, so what does he say to his wife? Hey, tell everybody you're my sister. Don't tell him you're my wife so that they won't kill me. A little bit of cowardice, a little bit. Remember, God had already told him, hey, I am your protector. And Abram's not real sure if he believes that yet. Okay? Yeah, God's my protector and everything, but listen, do me a favor, do me a solid. Tell everybody you're my sister. And what does Pharaoh do because of that? Verse 16, he dealt well with him for his sake. And basically, he gives Abram all these gifts. Makes sense, right? If he's going to take it in his mind, in Pharaoh's mind, hey, I'm taking your sister to be my wife. Here's your dowry. So Pharaoh dealt well with Abram for his sake. What did he give him? He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants. There's Hagar. Female donkeys and camels. 
So how in the world did they come to acquire Hagar? Through a lie. If he would have been honest to begin with, Hagar's not even in the picture. But now she is. Okay. Fast forward. Let's get back to 16. They've gone to Egypt. They've come back out. Now they've got all kinds of stuff, basically because of the lie. God still redeems that and says, look, he talks to Pharaoh, right? In a dream. Remember that? Chapter 12 talks to him in a dream. Says, look, pal, you're a dead man because this guy, he's a, he's a prophet. You're going to restore to him his wife. Okay, take his wife. By the way, that happened twice. Take his wife, give him back, right? What does the Pharaoh do? Look, I don't want any part of you. Take all of this good stuff that I just gave you and get out of here. So they do. They leave Egypt. But when they leave Egypt, they've got a bunch of possessions. Kind of foreshadowing there, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. So, back to chapter 16. Now... Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now look, if you got servants from the king of Egypt, which was the most powerful nation on earth at that time, and the the king was trying to win over your favor because he thinks ostensibly he's going to take your sister as his wife, these are not the worst servants in the land. You understand? They're not ugly. They're probably very skilled. These are good servants to have around. They're pharaohs. They're not the worst of the worst. They're the best of the best. So I don't think it took a whole lot of, you know, convincing. Maybe it did, but I don't think it took a whole lot of convincing to get Abram to go, look, I'm going to give her to you as a wife. Like, okay. But notice who came up with that idea. Wasn't Abram. Who was it? Sarai. Sarah. Whose idea is it? Sarah's. Now, I love when you read through this passage, if you read commentators, which I read a lot of commentators, they love to tell you, well, this would have been pretty normal in that culture. That's true. This would have been very normal in that culture. But just because something's normal in the culture does not mean it's right. It certainly doesn't mean it's right for God's people. I have news for you. You and I do the same thing today. We live in a culture that exerts incredible pressure on us to conform. Be just like the culture. Be like everyone else. Romans 12 says, don't let the world push you into its mold. It's trying to conform you to a certain idea, a certain shape, a certain way of life. It's trying to press you into that mold. And you, being the malleable sheep that you are and that I am, are oftentimes pressed into that. We are pressed into that mold. We want to talk like everybody else. We want to look like everybody else. We want to live like everybody else. We want to listen to the same music everybody else does. We want to watch the same TV shows everybody else does. We want to talk about the same video games everybody else does, the same movies everybody else does. Because if we do that, we will find a measure of acceptance in the broader culture and it makes us feel very comfortable. In this culture, that was true. It was no different in Abram's day. In this culture, it was very common. If you were the matriarch, your job was to have children and raise them, right? Obviously, still is today. If you were the matriarch, though, how much more so? Your job was to have children and raise them because they're going to carry on the family's legacy. Well, what do you do if you're barren? You can't have children. Well, at the time, there was this common custom 
You could have your servant girl. You could marry them to your husband. And then when the baby was born, seems very strange to me, but it's a different culture. I'm sure if Abram saw our culture today, he'd say the same thing. Very strange. Most people will live and die over a pigskin ball. They move back and forth. It's weird. In that culture, though, you could have your servant come in. Your husband sleeps with the servant. And when the baby is born, here's what the matriarch does. She strips down naked, lays right next to the the mom who's having the baby. And after the baby is born, they pick him up, wrap him up, and put him on top of mom who's naked. That was symbolic. The symbolism was now this child would be yours just as if you bore it. It's kind of like an early form of adoption. You're going to raise this child. It's going to have your name. You're going to decide what, you know, what he learns and what he doesn't learn. This is going to be your kid. The thinking of the time anyway was that the children comes from the man and the woman's just the ground that the seed is sown in. You understand? I'm trying to be as, you know, not brutish in my language here. So that made sense. Oh, okay. This is now yours. That may have made sense in the culture, but that does not mean it was a good practice for God's people. God had already revealed one man, one woman for life. Let's put this one a bit to to rest as well. Two things that I hear over and over and over and over and over that I literally feel like I feel like every couple months I'm having to rehash this with some new person. Two things. Here are the accusations. Well, the Bible, the Bible encourages polygamy. Two, the Bible encourages slavery. No. Listen, there is a huge difference between the Bible making an accurate recording of something and the Bible prescribing something as morally good. Just because the Bible records that there was polygamy in the Old Testament, even among our heroes of faith, does not mean that it is therefore good or morally acceptable. And it's the same way with slavery. By the way, the kind of slavery that we had here in America was not even thought about. If you owned a person, uh, the Levitical law said you were to be put to death. So please don't tell me the Bible condones slavery. It condones servitude. Yeah, you can work off your debt for seven years, and then you've got to be let go, and go back to your family, all that good stuff. Or you could stay if you liked it. If you thought they treated you well, and they basically treated you like a, 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 a son or, or daughter in the household, you could stay out of your own volition. So the Bible does not condone those two things. This is not the Bible's idea of condoning polygamy. You might notice by the end of the story, it's not going to end well. There are examples of polygamy in Scripture. There are no examples where that ends well. Does that make sense? Okay. You might want to bring that up next time somebody throws that out there to you. No, the Bible records that that happened. It does not say it is therefore a good thing morally. There are two differences. This is an entirely different category. Prescriptive morality, i.e., those things that the Bible says are good and true. That's over here. Accurate historical record, i.e., those things that the Bible records as actually historically happening. That's over here. Those are not the same thing. Okay? Now we've got that settled. Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. This is kind of a backhanded comment, and it's kind of a backhanded way. Has has God promised you He'll give you a son? Has God promised her at this point? Yes, yes, He has. What should her What should her 
response to that have been? God has promised it to me. It has not come to pass yet. Therefore, my job is to wait and be faithful. I have news. You and I and everybody else in humanity has problems with that, especially in our culture. We live in a microwave culture. We live in a culture where you can't do stuff fast enough. I mean, you can't cook food fast enough, right? Originally, you have the oven, right? Well, the oven can't do it fast enough. Let's get the crock pot. Well, Crock-Pot can't do it fast enough. Let's get the microwave. Now the microwave's not even fast enough. We got drive through baby. And we're mad at the drive through if it takes them more than three minutes. Give them a huge order. Hey, this is an entire order of food that's going to feed my family for this afternoon, and we're probably going to have leftovers for the next day or two. And these people can't make it in three minutes. And we're like, I can't believe it. What is taking them so long? We are a culture with no patience. We are a culture that, because of that, has very little self-control. We are an instant gratification culture. We think we, there is no room for us to throw stones at Sarai. She'd waited 10 years. And God's message to her was keep waiting. You know what I think happened? And I can't prove this, so it's not doctrine. I think she got tired of looking crazy. I mean, what do you look like if you're talking to your friends in the tent and they're like, hey, what about your kids? I don't have any yet, but God's going to give me some. Hey, sister, I mean, you ain't no spring chicken. And I hate to tell you this, but you kind of passed the age, you know. Are you going to look crazy if you say that? Yeah. Yeah, you are. And yet God wants you to say it. Why? You aren't going to look crazy when that baby comes, are you? Are people going to notice? Look, nobody gives, you know, nobody gives second thought or pause to a 30-year-old having a baby. That's just how it's supposed to be. Uh, but a 75 or 85 or 95-year-old has a baby, people are going to notice. Yet God was still doing something. And He was going to make His name known. He will be known, I am the God. I'm not a God. I'm not like the Egyptian gods, this big, you know, pantheon. I'm not like the Roman gods or the Greek gods. I am the God. And I alone can give life where there is none. I alone can raise from the dead. I alone can take a man who is dead in trespass and sin and raise him to newness of life. I alone am the God of life. And God was going to show that. And she may have sounded crazy telling her friends that, but that was her job. Yours too. So now, go into my servant. It may be that I'll obtain children by her. This is not a good plan. Ladies, in case you're wondering, not a good plan to encourage your husband to be with another woman. I know that's, that's probably, boy, that probably really comes as a shock to you, right? Not a good plan. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, whom they shouldn't have had to begin with, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Who gave her? You'll notice, absent is the Lord here. Does not say God gave. It says, Sarah gave. Sarah's got a great plan. Hey, God has told me this. He's given me this vision. He's given me this calling. He's given me this idea. But it hasn't happened yet, so I'm going to make it happen. Got news for you. Ten times out of ten, that's not going to end well. Been there. 
Ten times out of ten, that will not end well. I'm going to make this happen. It hasn't happened yet. We're going to make sure this happens. She gave Abram Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, as a wife. Verse 4. And he, Abram, went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Here's what that Hebrew uh, phrase actually means. When it says she looked with contempt, the actual phrase means to look down on. It's actually... The wording is that Sarah became small. In her eyes, Sarah became... What do you do with something that's small? You look down on it. Sarah became without consequence to her. And if you're arrogant, you do the same thing. Everybody else is without consequence to you. Because it's all about you. You look down on them. So we're noticing something here. There's nobody in this story who gets away without sin. Okay, There's nobody in this story that's innocent. Sarah hatched a bad plan because what she wanted to happen hadn't happened yet. So she decides to take it into her own hands. That's dumb. It's illogical. Very illogical. One of the wonderful things, the thing that I love about the Lord the most. Not, I shouldn't say that. One of the things I love about the Lord is that sin is irrational. It is illogical. And God can come and talk to you about that, which he'll do with Hagar here in a little bit, just like he did in the garden, and show you this is a stupid plan. Sometimes when you're thinking to it yourself, you're like, this is, this is genius. This is an awesome. This is a great idea. You ever had this? This is genius. And then you get your, your pal, your Christian friend, and you go, hey, I got this plan. And as you're speaking it, as it's coming out your mouth, you're like, this is dumb. But when I was by myself all alone, I mean, this seemed like a solid plan. All right? What does God do in the garden? Hey, 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 time out. Adam, where are you? Why did God ask where he was at? Did God, the all-knowing, not know where Adam was? Yes, he knew. Why does God ask these rhetorical questions? Because he's trying to get them to think through it. Hey, Adam, where are you? I'm hiding from you. Mm. If you're hiding from me, do you think you might have done something poorly here? Think you might have made a bad judgment? The same thing happens with Hagar. She conceives and now she thinks poorly of Sarai, right? Hey, you couldn't get it done. Remember, that was like validation of being a woman, right? Hey, you couldn't have children. That's one of the major things of being a woman, being a mother. Look at me. I got it done. Who are you? I mean, you're inconsequential at this point. Yeah, I'm his wife. So what? You're the wife that can't have kids. I'm his wife, too. Remember, you gave me to him as wife. Not only am I his wife, I'm his wife that has kids. I'm the wife that produced the heir. And I got news for you, sweetheart. You're no spring chicken. You're going to be gone before too long. And I'll still be here. And my kids will be here. I'm the new matriarch. That's what she's thinking in her mind. You're of no consequence. So what happens? She comes to Abraham and Abram, instead of being the um, man that he should have been, instead of basically saying, OK, look, I'm going to take care of this problem. We're going to have a big family meeting and I'm going to I'm going to cut this thing off. I'm going to confront this and I'm going to take care of it. Instead of doing that, what does he basically do? It's not my problem. Right. Hey, she's in your hands. Do with her what you want to. Not my problem. What pathetic leadership. Well, he wasn't a Christian. Really? He, wa- 
He wasn't. Chapter 15, we just saw that Abram believed God and God accounted it to him for righteousness. He was a believer by this point. If you think that believers will not sin, you're crazy. Abram's a believer and he still did this. Got a long way to go in his sanctification. So do you. So do I. She looked on her with contempt. May the wrong done to me be on you. This is verse 5. Sarai says to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. (laughs) What? Whose idea was this? It was hers. And she has real trouble accepting responsibility. Man, I hatched this plan. I concocted this plan. Now it's backfired. Well, it's on you now. Who came up with this plan? It's on Abram now? Abram did what you asked him to do, ladies. I'm sure you've never done that with your husband. I told you to do this and you did it. Now it backfired. It's your fault. I've never done that with my wife. Don't ask her, though. She might tell you differently. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. How crazy. You decided to try this marriage thing in a way that God has not spoken, in a way that God has not commanded, and it backfired on you. How weird. May the Lord judge between you and me. God will see it. (laughs) You're right. He may not see it like you see it, though. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant's in your power. Do to her as you please. I shouldn't have to bring this up, but I will. That was also his wife now, too. Great job protecting your wife, buddy. So then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. How harshly did Sarai treat her? I don't know, but it must have been pretty harsh if a pregnant woman decides it would be better for me to try to go back across the desert into Egypt and stay here. I don't know how harsh, but it must have been pretty harsh. What happens in in verse 7? The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. If you have an ESV or a New King James or a King James, you will notice the word Lord is in all caps. This is not an angel. This is the angel of the Lord. What does that mean? This is Jesus. This is pre-incarnate deity. This is Yahweh. This is the same God that spoke out of the bush, the flaming bush that was not um, consumed. This is the same God that met Moses on the mountain. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? He's not singing Cotton Eye Joe to him. Right? You'll forever think that now every time you hear that stupid song. You're like, this was Hagar. This was Hagar's tune. No, what is he saying? What are you thinking? Where do you think you're going? By the way, where, where, is, she, where is she going? Well, if she's, on the, if she's at a spring on the way to Shur, she's on her way back to Egypt. This is a bad plan for a lot of reasons. Why? Number one, that's a long way to go, pregnant. No entourage. Probably not going to make it. Number two, what's the... Uh, What's the likelihood she's going to hear the gospel in Egypt? What's the likelihood that she or her children are going to serve the true and living God if she goes back to Egypt? 
pretty low. If that is something that you as a parent have not thought through, maybe you should. I've got news for you. There are jobs you can take and places you can go that are great for you and bad for your kids. And sometimes that's not a good idea. In fact, most times that's not a good idea. It is important that your children know the Lord. It should be. What else is more important for your children? Want to make sure they get a good education? What if they go to Harvard on a full ride, but they don't know the Lord? Did it work out for you? What does it profit a man if he gains the entire world but loses his own soul? Hagar is on the way. If she gets to, e- to uh, Egypt and she has Ishmael in Egypt, what's the chance he's going to know the true and living God? Effectively zero. Keep that in the back of your mind. Here she is. She's out here in the wilderness. God meets her and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? He is not saying this because he does not know. He knows where she came from. He knows where she's going. He's trying to get her to think through this thing. Think through this thing. Well, you don't understand, God. It's pretty bad for me back there. She's being mean to me, hurt my feelings. It's a whole lot worse where you're going. It doesn't seem that way, though. It doesn't seem that way because you're in a tough situation. You ever had that? I've had that before. You're in a tough, tough situation at work and you think the best thing for me is just quit this job and I'll get another one. Man, I'm in a tough situation in my church. best thing for me is just quit this place and go to another one. I'm sure you've never seen or known anybody like that. Got a new job every three months, new church every three months, whatever. Blow in, blow out. Why? Well, it would be better for me somewhere else. It's strange because typically when that's the idea, when that's the ideology, they can blow into a different job, blow into a different church, blow into a different whatever, and somehow the circumstance never changes. Maybe it's because there's a defect in your character that God wants to work out. Maybe the problem here is there's a defect in Hagar's character too. Is there a defect in Hagar's character? Yeah, the people who have looked after her, fed her, made sure she was protected, kept her from getting stolen... Remember Lot? Remember all the people? Now she, in her mind, they're no big deal. They're inconsequential. Yeah, that's a problem. Arrogance is always a problem. Here's the part you're not going to like. So what did he say to Sarai? Was Sarai being treated wrong? uh, What does he say to Hagar? Was Hagar being treated wrongly by Sarai? Yes. Yes, she was. Was Hagar experiencing persecution? Yes. Yes, she was. What is Jesus's solution to that? Here it is. Well, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Her? You must not have heard. You, you didn't. I'll try this one more time. You didn't. You obviously didn't hear what I said. See, what I said was she's treating me harshly and that's why I fled. And God himself speaks and says, return and submit. Well, I don't like that. Why don't you just give me a better place? I don't want to go back and submit. Maybe God is dealing with her character and maybe God deals with yours as well. Sometimes the Lord's answer to a tough problem like that is, I'll give you a different job. That's that's possible. 
But I think a lot more common than that is, I'll change you. I'm in this really bad situation, yeah. And probably part of the reason you're in that bad situation is you have character flaws yourself. Got news for you, you're not Jesus Jr. Neither am I. And maybe through that tough situation, God is actually hammering out some of the stuff that needs hammered out of you. God is forming you into the image of Christ. And sometimes that comes through tough times. Sometimes it comes by returning and saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me, I was an arrogant behind. I'm trying to work on that though. God has revealed to me that I need to do some changing and I'm really sorry about that. Those words will taste like vinegar coming out of your mouth. But they may also help to form the character of Christ in you. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael. By the way, what does Ishmael mean? God hears. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He heard you. He knew you were afflicted. Did God say she was not afflicted? Hey, it's all in your mind. You're not actually being afflicted. You're just being overly sensitive. Go back and submit. No, she is being afflicted. And yet God still says, return and submit. Return, submit. That's tough. We think of Hagar all the time as the enemy, right? There's that good Sarah who brought us, you know, the... the Basically, the progenitors of our faith, right? And then there's Hagar. She's that wicked Egyptian girl that had Ishmael. That's how we think in our mind. That is not true. Hagar was not evil. Hagar obeyed God's command. Being afflicted, she goes into the wilderness. God says, I want you to return and submit. She does not sit here and argue. She doesn't go, well, just give me some water so I can make it back. Your God... You've told me what to do. I'll do it. How many of you would have the courage to do that? Would I have the courage to do that? I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered. Behold, you're pregnant. You'll bear a son. You'll call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Here's if if you're a marker or highlighter or one of these people that, you know, marks in your Bible. I'm one of those people. I write stuff on the sides. I would circle or underline verse 12. Why? This is the first, basically this is a prophecy of Arabic Muslims. Muhammad was directly descended from who? Ishmael. And he's very proud of that fact. This is a, this is a very good description too. He's going to be a wild donkey of a man. It means, in other words, nobody can tame it. His hand will be against everyone. And everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all of his kinsmen. That's, that's a very good description of Islam. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. And she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Why is that a big deal? She was raised where? Egypt. What gods did she know? She didn't know the God of Israel. She didn't know the true God. 
She knew the gods of Egypt. And yet here she says, not that she's seen Ra, not that she's seen the gods of Egypt. She says, the one and true God saw me. I met him. He heard my cry. He told me what to do. And guess what I did? I obeyed. Truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. God will take care of me. She understood more about the providence of God than a lot of us do in our modern days and culture. I saw God. He told me to go back into that bad situation that was so bad, I'm literally trying to flee across the desert, pregnant. But God saw me and he told me to go back. And I believe it is him who looks after me. He will take care of me. He will deal with this situation somehow. And I will therefore obey and go back, even though my flesh is telling me never to go back. Truly, I have seen him who looks after me. <clears throat> therefore, the well was called Beer Lehi Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. She called him, by the way, El Roy, the God, God who sees. I have seen him who looks after me. He sees. He sees my affliction. He sees me. He sees who I am. And yet he still loves me. He still loves me enough to take care of me. We could learn a lot by what Hagar said. God sees it and he takes care of me. The problem here in this entire situation is that both Sarai and Hagar have allowed the culture to dictate to them their worth and their identity. Sarai's identity is basically in children. Well, so is Hagar's. The problem is this. If you allow something other than Christ, other than the gospel, to dictate to you your identity, you will fall into one of two ditches. If you get that thing that you think will validate you, you'll become proud, arrogant. And if you don't get that thing that you think validates you, you'll be bitter. That's exactly what we see with Hagar and Sarai. They have allowed the culture to tell them, this is what makes you worth something. This is what makes you worthwhile. This is what makes you significant. Sarai doesn't get it. She becomes bitter. Hagar does. She's arrogant. I have news for you. The gospel will obliterate all of that. If your identity is in something other than Christ, I promise you, when you come to Christ, the first thing he's going to do is start tearing that down. My identity was in being a football player. When I thought of myself, that's what I, I was Paul the athlete. I'd always been Paul the athlete. I was Paul the college football player. I'd always been Paul the, the football star. Well, guess what happens when I get born again and I go to two-a-days a week later? I have never struggled with injuries up to that point, really, nothing serious. And all of a sudden, I cannot stay healthy. I cannot get on the field. I cannot play. I feel worthless. You know why? Because God was tearing down that thing that I had built up in my... That's idolatry, by the way. When something other than Christ gives you your worth and your value, you're, in, you're consumed with idolatry. There are a lot of parents today, I see it almost every Friday night, whose worth and identity is wrapped up in their kids' athletic prowess. If that is where your worth and identity is wrapped up, I promise God will tear that down. If your identity is wrapped up in what you do, I promise God will tear that down. 
Because it's idolatry. And he will come after every idol in your heart. And we want to think that as Christians, we don't have any of those. And that's not true. We do. Sometimes they're more subtle. You can idolize ministry. Well, I mean, I love Jesus, but I want that ministry. Okay, God will tear that down then. You can idolize things that seem to be good, but they can be taken to places that they should never have been. By the way, why can I tell you about that? I did that. As a youth pastor, I got to that where I was idolatry. I was basically making ministry an idol. And God tore that down. It took me out of ministry for a little over two years. You know why? Because my identity must be in Christ. I am Paul, follower of Christ, period. And if God gives me the, the opportunity to minister, great. If God gives me the opportunity to be a good athlete, fantastic. But all of those things and all the other, if God, God gives me a place to be the big CEO of the corporation, fantastic. But all of those things must be subdued under the lordship of Christ. And if my identity comes from something outside of Christ, as soon as I lose that whatever it is that I'm using to validate me, my entire world comes crashing down. I start really, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm dealing with depression, I'm dealing with... Basically, the reason I am is because, in my mind, I'm worthless. Yeah, but you're a Christian. Yeah, yeah, I've got Jesus, but so does everybody else. Who cares? Big deal. It's a real big deal. It should be the biggest deal of your life. My identity's always been in it. I'm a great student. I have great grades. i got news for you, pal. <laughs> uh, you got a C coming your way. <laughs> or a D. Or worse. Why? God, you just don't understand. No, he understands. And he's going to wipe out that idolatry. He's going to bring you back to the foot of the cross. Why? Because that's where you find your identity. That's the only place that you find your identity. At the foot of the cross, in the blood of Christ. That's what matters. Why? Why is that such a solid identity? Because that can't be taken from you no matter what. That can't be taken from you if they snatch you up on the streets, bind you, put you on a pole, and burn you for it. They cannot take it away from you. Your ministry can be taken from you. Your wonderful grades can be taken from you. Your CEO position can be taken from you. Your position in Christ cannot be taken by anyone, cannot be taken by any angel, cannot be taken by any human. I don't care who they are. Your identity in Christ is the rock-solid basis by which you live your life. Start at verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You're the God who sees. And she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lehi Roy. And it lies between Kadesh and Bered. Basically, that's on the way to Egypt. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. That is important. Why is that important? Was, was Abram there when that happened? No. Abram saw something in Hagar... That changed. Because when Hagar came back and said, hey, that God that you've been talking about, that's, you know, appeared to you and spoke to you, he appeared to me and he spoke to me too. Really, what did he say? Basically, he told me to repent. He told me to come back and submit. Really? Yeah. He also said, I'm pregnant with a son and we're supposed to call his name Ishmael. For God hears. 
Really? Yeah. He must have seen a difference because when that baby was born, whose right was it to name them? The right of naming that baby was Abram and Sarah's, not Abram and Hagar's. And yet, they name him the name that Hagar said, hey, this is what God said to name him. Which means they obviously believed her report of running into God in the wilderness. And there must have been some change. Or trust me, Sarai wouldn't have gone along with that. I think Hagar isn't the enemy. I think she's a great picture of the gospel. She left the camp one way. And she came back a changed person. She is worthy to be a hero of the faith. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. I would like to go on, but I don't think I can do the point justice. I think the Lord can. And I pray that he is working on your heart in those same areas and situations which we've seen in this chapter. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Forgive me, Lord, for not giving enough study to it. Forgive me for overlooking so much in it. Forgive me for the places that I've made idols of other things, even if they were good things by the world's standard. Let us not be pressed into the mold of the culture, Lord, but change our hearts. Make dead hearts alive. Let us follow you and be like Christ. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.